right, Psalm 60, if you'll turn with me there as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together. We'll see if we can't look at a few more of the Psalms this evening together. Psalm 60 tells us that it was set to uh, Lily of the Testimony, so apparently that was the tune or the melody in particular that this psalm was written and was to be set to that particular uh, tune. We're told it's another miktam of David, and as we've said before, that word miktam just means uh, golden, so in some ways some of the psalms are differentiated. We're told that they are actually miktams, so uh, whether these were special psalms of David deemed in that way or there was some other purpose for why they get that title, we we aren't certain, but again, in Psalm 60, on the prescript here, we get a little bit of the setting that helps us fill in some of the backdrop of this psalm. We don't always get it, but here we are told that by the Holy Spirit. We're told that this psalm was when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed the 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now, what that gives to us is sort of a setting. The backdrop here is somewhere early in the reign of David, uh, during the time in his earlier reign when he was expanding greatly the kingdom of Israel. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that David was prevailing and the Lord was giving him victory wherever he went. And on many different battlefronts, David was fighting battles and he was expanding the territory of Israel during that time. And we know that in that time, he was off uh, with his army fighting up in the northeast at that time, uh, having conflict with the Syrians and conquering territory against the Syrians at that time. And why he was in the northeast, the Edomites, who were really more towards the southern area, recognized in their mind what seemed to be a vulnerability on the southern front of Judah, And so they sought to capitalize on that occasion when David and the army were up in the north battling there, seeing a vulnerability. They broke through with an invasion in the south, and this caused a a temporary defeat as well as a real setback, it seems, for the kingdom of Israel. And David, in light of that, though it is difficult to fight battles on two fronts, recognized that he needed to do what was necessary, so he turns to Joab, one of his generals, and sends him down, we're told here, uh, with a a battalion, an army group of soldiers, and they go down and they fight against the Edomites where they are able to conquer and to stop the invasion and drive them back out of the land from the southern territory. But David is writing this psalm, and this is sort of what the backdrop is for us. He's writing the psalm as a reflection during a time when there was a military defeat that had just happened in the nation. So David is writing some of these things kind of in a season when he has just gone through a defeat, when God's people have been defeated recently, where there has been an enemy invasion and an attack, and they've kind of suffered, you might fairly say, what we might call a setback. Uh, And so David is writing this psalm with kind of that backdrop of having just experienced defeat, having just gone through the experience of a setback. And so the idea here is that there are lessons to be learned in times when we find ourselves being defeated. And there are times that as we walk with the Lord, though predominantly if we are walking in fellowship with Christ and we're walking in the power of his Holy Spirit, The Christian life should predominantly, according to New Testament promises of what the Christian life is to be about, the the Christian life should predominantly be about walking in victory. And, And predominantly, we should be experiencing victory over sin. We should be experiencing victory over struggles because of the promises of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and all that has been afforded to us in our relationship with Christ and what he's made available to us through his victory, as well as the power of the Holy Spirit helping us in the promises of God. The Christian life should not predominantly be characterized by a life of being continually defeated. Something is very wrong in the Christian experience if we are experiencing chronic and continual defeat. That's not the intention that God has for us. Now, that being said, it does not mean that on occasion, through the weakness of our own flesh or spiritual warfare and the attack of the enemy exploiting a vulnerability in our Christian life or 
and just, you know, worldly pressures from time to time. You know, we do battle against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And uh, there's not going to be complete 100% victory until we're released from these earthly bodies, which are still plagued with sinful desires and weaknesses of the flesh. And until we're set free from this world where there is the presence of sin and the power of Satan still at work among us. So we are from time to time going to experience periodic defeats. There are going to be times when there are going to be setbacks uh, in our lives. And I think there are lessons to be learned in those times. Sometimes God's teaching us a lesson when we find ourselves, rather than just completely 100% on the success train, plowing forward and it is just accomplishment after accomplishment after victory after victory and everything is going merry, 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 wonderful, wonderful, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's a, a setback. Or periodically, we go through some defeat in some way and we kind of have a setback in our personal life or maybe even in our spiritual walk with the Lord. And there are lessons to be learned in those times. And one of the evident lessons we'll see in this psalm that David points out is that even when we experience defeat or a setback, there is always opportunity to regroup. There is always the opportunity by the grace of God to recover and also to be restored. Even after defeat, Again, remember Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And then he said this right afterwards, but when you return, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Peter, after you know what it feels like to have a major personal failure, a spiritual shipwreck and deny the Lord, Peter, you will be all the more equipped after you regroup, after you're restored, after God puts you back on your feet and starts working through you again. And it's interesting Jesus promised fruitfulness and even ministry after Peter's failure. He said, Peter, after you restore, I want you to use what happened in your life as a motivation and incentive and really a greater degree of compassion and connection to strengthen other brethren with, with grace and humility and compassion. And, and Peter could understand that and was able to be used by the Lord even on the other side as he regrouped after kind of a setback in his own spiritual life. So again, this is the backdrop here. They've gone through a time of defeat, a setback. David begins this psalm by doing the wisest thing you can do whenever defeat comes your way, whenever you have just gone through a setback. The best thing to do first and foremost is just stop and cry out to the Lord. Just cry out to God. And that's what David does at the beginning. He says, oh God, and notice his language. Now he says, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been, interesting, verse one, displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble and you have broken it. Heal its breaches for it is shaking. You have shown your people, he says, hard things. You have made us drink, he says, the wine of confusion. So notice here in these verses, David saw this defeat and setback clearly in his mind as something the Lord had allowed. That for some reason, God had allowed them, and David even points out, due to verse 1, to, to some degree of displeasure that God had with the people of Israel or perhaps with David himself personally, maybe an attitude of heart that he was in. Maybe David was getting a little bit proud in all these accomplishments and victories and God was using him and he was prospering and winning battle after battle. And, and maybe God thought, well, you know, maybe he needs a little wind knocked out of his sails before he thinks that somehow it's all about him uh, and all these battles he's winning and that this victory and prosperity is because of something that he's bringing to the table. And maybe God in his own estimation began to get a little displeased with David. Maybe he saw David beginning to get a little bit proud or arrogant in his heart and the way that he was leading or that the people weren't recognizing it was the hand of the Lord, but they thought it was their great military strength or whatever. Because David clearly in these verses senses and discerns in the defeat and in the setback, no doubt as he's sending the men down, he realizes, Lord, in some way you have been displeased. He says there, Lord, verse one, you have broken us down. Lord, Lord, you saw the need to break us in our lives. And, you know, sometimes God sees that need in our life. Sometimes God sees that we need to be broken as people. 
And look, that's not a bad thing. Remember David said back in Psalm 51, we saw a little while ago when he said, the sacrifice and offerings you don't desire, but he says, God, these are the things that you desire. A Remember he said, a broken and a contrite heart. See, because by nature, our hearts tend to be very arrogant and stubborn and self-sufficient, and we just kind of think that we can handle and do everything on our own. And, and as a result of that, sometimes God needs to break our spirit. Sometimes we need to go through personal brokenness in our lives, and that's not a bad thing. In the world's estimation, when something's broken, it loses value, Right? So you, you break a piece of furniture or you break a, a, a vase or a vase, whatever, if you're into those things, it loses its value or China or whatever. it loses. But in God's economy, something broken actually increases in value. Paul the Apostle saw that in 2 Corinthians where Paul recognized as this thorn was left in his flesh and God, remember he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be, Paul said what? 2 Corinthians 12, exalted beyond measure because Paul was receiving revelations from the Lord and God was doing things in Paul's life. And to keep Paul kind of tempered, God allowed his spirit to be broken a little bit. God used a, a fleshly difficulty, actually a physical affliction, some pain and hardship in his life that just kind of tempered him in his spirit and kept him in a a broken condition dependent upon the Lord where he was pleading with the Lord for grace and Jesus was ministering to him and actually worked more powerfully through his weakness than through Paul's own strength. And sometimes that's necessary. And so David says here, Lord, we've just been defeated by the Edomites in the South. And this is a major setback for us as we were up here. You left us vulnerable. They came in and, and he says, but yet, Lord, it seems that you've cast us off. Later, he's going to say, Lord, if you don't go out with our armies, this is the kind of stuff that happens if you're not with us. But he senses here that God at least permitted or brought this to pass in his sovereignty. He says, you've cast us off. You've broken us down. Because you've been displeased. And you know, if the Lord's displeased with us, certainly uh, he's a faithful father. And so if there's a need to correct our attitude or to put us in a better condition, if something is displeasing him, he has no problem in a sense pulling his hand off, letting the pressure increase, letting it get difficult to get our attention again, to bring us back to a place of dependence or reliance upon him or seeking him in the way that we should be. So he says, Lord, please, he cries out, restore us again. Notice David understood. Yes, we might have been defeated. Yes, this may be a setback, but God, I also know you're gracious. And so, Lord, I'm crying out, please. Apparently, we've displeased you. Please have mercy. Restore us, Lord. Restore us once again. He says, you've made the earth to tremble and broken it. And again, he cries out, heal its breaches. Lord, you've let us be broken. You've let us be wounded by what happened. But Lord, would you please bring healing? He says, heal us, Lord. Bring back healing and restoration. He says, verse three, you have shown your people hard things and have made us drink the wine. The idea is the intoxicating experience of confusion. Again, David understood, as the Bible says, God's not the author of confusion, right? God's a God of order. So when confusion comes into the mix and things get chaotic and confusing, that's a clear red flag to us in our spiritual lives. Something's amiss between us and God. Something's not right because confusion is not God's intention. God's intention is clarity and order and truth. And he says, Lord, you have shown us some hard things. And we're just saying, God, you, you've, well, you've, you've let us experience some hardships. And look, it's important for us to realize God is not opposed to bringing circumstantial difficulty into our lives if that actually benefits our soul. And that's hard for our little human, especially comfortable American mindsets to imagine that God would actually let us experience hard things. Yes. I mean, what good earthly father doesn't from time to time, if they're raising their children properly, actually let them experience hard things for character development or to strengthen them or help mature them or let them grow? You know, one of the terms I would use with my wife periodically on occasion, I would say that's called reality discipline. It's called 
all right, I'm going to allow you to make that decision, and the reality of what happens when you make that decision will be the discipline. And so even as they're growing and they're learning how to do that, you know, sometimes, as any good father, you, know, you, you subject to hard things to grow, to mature, to develop. And God is not opposed as a loving, caring God, knowing what's best for us to say, you know what? From time to time, you may need a trial in your life. I may need to allow a hardship or a difficulty or to sovereignly allow something to come to pass. Again, the New Testament speaks to us in 1 Peter and James chapter 1, how trials develop character. They develop our perseverance. They they mature us in certain ways. And so sometimes, again, especially if we're off on a wrong course and we've displeased the Lord, he has no problem bringing some hard things and showing us hard times to get our attention, to wake us up, and maybe to get us back on track because that's ultimately what's better for us to be awakened by the hard circumstances. He says there, verse 4, and you have given, he says, a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now, the idea of a banner from a military sense, they would use banners in that day in combat and with military to basically the banner was sort of the rallying point for the troops. And as they would see the banner, whether it was a flag or something that was held, that banner was a rallying point for the troops. It was proof to them of their purpose. It reminded them of their identity and their existence, who they really were and why they existed as a people group or a a group of soldiers. And that banner was meant to inspire the troops as they saw the banner that they fight under and maybe the emblem that was on it, that banner was intended to not only rally them, but it was also intended to inspire them to boldly engage in battle. They'd see the banner, they'd see the crest on it, and the idea was to inspire them. Hey, remember our identity? Remember why we're out here on the battlefield? We need to to be encouraged to to rally under that and to carry onward and to be encouraged. And and we see this idea from time to time in the Bible of, of how God, again, we're sort of soldiers of the Lord. And he says, Lord, for those who fear you, that is those who reverence the Lord, he says, you've given a banner to those who fear you. That is those who humbly feared God's rulership were encouraged to rally under the banner of the Lord. The idea is to rally under the Lord's leading to remember who they were as God's people and to be inspired to fight, despite the fact that they had been defeated and had a setback to realize, wait a minute, we need to rally back to the Lord, regroup, get our eyes back on the captain of our faith and, and, and the general of our army, and we need to just regroup under his leadership and follow the general and what he's telling us to do and not give up in the battle here. And be willing to do whatever we need to do to regroup and to rally and be inspired. And he would help them to recover in the midst of their battle. Notice that banner, he says there, verse 4, was displayed because of the truth. And, you know, that, that is the banner that God uses to inspire us. It's the truth, the truth of God's word. It's principles and its promises that that is what we look to that's our rallying point oh man i've gone through a major defeat in my life and whether it was a failure or something happened some disappointment i've gone through this horrible setback what do i do well you need to rally back to the banner of the truth of god's word and and this is how you reset your bearings you get back to the word of god and you stick your face in the word of god and you say lord i need you to help me get reoriented here I need you to help me regroup mentally and emotionally and spiritually and help me to recover and recuperate. And as you get back to the word of God, that's what begins to inspire you again to walk in the truth, to remember your identity, to remember who God is and to rally under his leadership and to be inspired to go forward once again, despite the defeat or setback. He says, verse five, that your beloved, notice he he still saw, them as the people that the Lord loved. He says, Lord, we're your beloved, that they may be delivered. And then he cries out, Lord, save with your right hand and hear me. Lord, yes, we've gone through a setback, but we're your beloved people. Lord, you love us. And yes, we may not have done everything right, but Lord, one thing I do know of the truth that you have shown and displayed to us is that we're your beloved. We're your special people, Lord. And just relying on the love of God gave David that encouragement to say, Lord, please save us. Step in and intervene and deliver us. 
Verse six, he then declares, God has spoken in his holiness. So it's almost as if God now responds. Again, David prays, and it's almost as if the voice now of the Lord comes into the psalm. And notice, as God speaks in his holiness, his purity and his perfection, God speaks basically a victory claim and just speaks of his sovereign rulership. He says, verse six, God speaking says, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead, God declares, is mine. And Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab, he says, is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Philistia, Sauton, triumph because of me. So God here basically makes a victory claim and begins to describe how he would conquer and he was in control and was going to engage in the situation despite what had happened. He refers to different territories in Israel here, Shechem, and we know Shechem from Genesis chapter 12 was that location where Abraham received the promises of God initially in regards to the land of Israel being given to him and his descendants. So very interesting that God would say, look, my promises, I gave that land to you. So it doesn't matter who came in and defeated you. It doesn't matter what kind of setback you've gone through temporarily. My promise is going to remain in your life because I've given you that land. And so nobody's going to take what I've given to you away from you. You know, and sometimes God needs to remind us of that reality. You know, the enemy comes in, he renders some, you know, victory in our life. He defeats us. We maybe have a little setback or whatever. And then we start getting condemned and concerned and we start worrying about all the things. And God says, look, I've made a covenant and a promise. And I'm not taking those promises away from you. My promises are going to fail. I began a good work in you and I'm going to be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. And God says, I'm the one who saw, yes, it was a setback, God says. Did you think you're never gonna have a setback? Did you think never you were gonna fail or stumble once in a while or that periodically you wouldn't suffer defeat in the midst of victory after victory? You know, sometimes we, we need to suffer defeat once in a while just to keep a degree of humility in our lives and to keep us dependent upon the Lord. And so the Lord says, look, I'm in control of these things. I'm the one who's measuring out the Valley of Sukkoth. Again, these are areas on the Western side in the land of Israel. And then he references Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine and Ephraim, he calls the the helmet for my head. Again, he's using these military pictures, but also claiming territories on both the Western side of the Jordan River, as well as territories on the Eastern side of the Jordan River. And God says, it's all mine. And because it's all mine, ultimately, I'll be the one to determine what happens. He refers to the tribe of Judah. He says there, Judah is my lawgiver. And there God makes a reference all the way back to the end of Genesis, when the very blessings were being given uh, there by Jacob to the different you know, children of Israel and how Judah would be the lawgiver. The idea of speaking of rulership there. The scepter not departing from Judah. And of course, ultimately, we know Jesus himself became the fulfillment of that because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And ultimately, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, uh, the ultimate lawgiver and ruler spiritually. And then verse 8, he speaks of some of the perennial enemies of the nation of Israel that they had fought from time to time. And even Edom, who had just recently come in and invaded them, and both of these people groups, the Moabites and the Edomites were reflected in the word of God as people who were characterized by pride. We see the pride of Moab and the pride of Edom, and we see what God does with pride. He destroys it. You see what God says here of Moab? God says, Moab is my wash pot. The idea there, the wash pot is the pot, the, the bowl that would be used by the servant to wash the dirty feet as people would come in with the dirt and you know sand and dust from the you know areas of Palestine, and they would use the wash pot to wash the feet. You know the idea is is God saying that that that's that's what Moab is to me. It, it, it's nothing in my sight. He may act arrogant and proud in the way he behaves, but he says to me Moab is my wash pot, and over Edom God says I'll cast my shoe. He has to stand upon. In triumph again, no, no nation, no territory. Doesn't matter what t- nation or territory on the earth, in any way, 
intimidates God. So, you know, nations may rise and fall and do what they want, but, you know, from God's rulership, he laughs, the Bible tells us, at the way that men behave. Nothing intimidates God, and here ultimately his control was what was the assurance of victory for his people. So David then cries out once again, verse 9, who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Again, perhaps thinking about having to go down and fight against them. Lord, uh, who will lead? How do you want this to happen? Seeking God's guidance. And then look what David says in verse 10, as I referenced earlier. He says, is it not you, O God, who cast us off? God, you're the one who cast us off, but yet you're the one now who we need to look to to lead us and to help us regroup. And just because God had perhaps retracted his help from them didn't mean that he had turned away from them. You know, and just because God from time to time may say, you know what, your heart's getting a little bit proud there, son. So I'll tell you what, why don't you try that on your own for a minute or two? And sometimes God, you know, is just, okay, okay, you got it, you got it. Oh, you just kind of as a parent with a kid, okay, you, oh, you know what you're doing now. No, why don't you try that for a while? See how well you do. But again, after the, the setback, the failure, you know, God may allow that to happen. But, but the same God is a loving father after we fall flat on our face or suffer a defeat or a setback. He's the same one who says, okay, you learn from that. Now let me help you regroup. Let, let me help you get back on track now. And let me give you some guidance and assistance again as a loving father would. And, and David refers very directly in verse 10. He says, Lord, you, O God, who did not go out with our armies. In other words, David recognized that to some degree, God had actually allowed their armies not to succeed. Uh, and he recognized that reality, that victory was dependent upon God's help and God's assistance. He then concludes verse 11 saying, give us help, Lord, please, he says, from trouble, for the help of man is useless. That should be underlined in your Bible. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Notice David makes that clear distinction there where victory comes from and where it does not come from. He, he very clearly recognizes that the arm of flesh, the help of human beings is utterly unreliable. I mean, do you see what David declares there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, Lord, Please, verse 11, he says, give us help from trouble. Here's why. We need your help, God, in trouble, because the help of man is useless. It's useless. And from time to time, one of the hard things God will allow us to learn is that reality, that the help of man is really useless. It, it really is. I mean, people may want to help us. They may have good intention to help us or they may promise or say they're going to help us. But from time to time, we will realize the help of other people is absolutely undependable. It's unreliable. And the Bible even goes so far as to say it's actually really quite useless. It's quite useless because people are frail and they're fickle and people are, you know, have limitations in what they're able to do and their resources and their capacities. But he says, so therefore we need to remember, look, the help of man is useless. And that's so important because sometimes we put way too much dependence and expectation in people. And then we're getting disappointed. Oh, I, don't, I can't believe they didn't come through. I can't, I was depending on them. I was relying on them. And God says, right, I told you the help of man is useless. I told you that. Why are you relying on people more than me? The help of man. It's useless. It's useless. But by the same token, he says, look, but through God, we will do valiantly. Again, sometimes God wants us to realize how useless the help of other human beings is so that we realize how useful the help of God is in our life. That we realize that's where our soul dependency should be. That victory comes treading down our enemies and whatever your enemies may be. Maybe it's an enemy of some sin in your life. Maybe it's an enemy of just some thought and emotional or mental struggle you have in your life. Maybe it's the enemy of some circumstantial thing or some personal enemy that, look, whatever it is, he says the way to defeat our enemies is through God. It's through relying upon God and, and walking in fellowship with him and letting him through his power 
Help us to tread down the enemies in our lives. I, I tell you, one of the greatest lessons that we can learn through our life is to become more and more dependent upon God and less and less reliant upon other people. You know, the, the longer I've walked with the Lord, I, I just feel like the more impressed I become with God and the less impressed I become with human beings. And I'm sure the feelings likewise. I'm sure we share the same feeling towards <laughs> but I just it's just a reality. God continues to impress me with his faithfulness and his power and how when you rely on him and call upon him, he always finds a way to come through. And by the same token, again and again, we're always realizing, oh man, just, you know, people, people, people. And, and we're all people, right? And we know how many times we're useless in situations. And God here, just great spiritual reminder that we would keep our full reliance upon God. And I'll tell you, when you do that, the glorious thing is you get to see God bring victories in your life. And you realize, man, I fully had to rely on God there, and he did it. And there's something really wonderful to get to see that happen from time to time. Psalm 61, David then says, hear my cry, O God. And again, we don't know the backdrop here, but David again in a desperation in the midst of his life, you can tell, he says, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I will cry to you. Now, I don't know if David was geographically disconnected from the area of Jerusalem and the temple at this time, or if the idea is he just feels like that, like spiritually, that's his geographic location. Lord, I just feel like I am so far off. I feel like I'm so far disconnected from where I need to be. But Lord, I know that no matter where I'm at or how far I'm gone or how separated I feel, that even from the ends of the earth, Lord, I can still cry out to you. And then that beautiful statement David makes, verse two, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me, he says, to the rock that is higher than I. Now, the very fact that David declares there in verse 2 that statement, when my heart is overwhelmed, now here's the trick question, what does that mean? His heart was overwhelmed. That's actually what the Hebrew means. David, this valiant, strong, battle-hardened military man, I mean, he was like elite special forces in the nation of Israel, extremely masculine, tough, gifted man and yet david said there were times when my heart was just overwhelmed i just felt completely overwhelmed inside as a man i i just felt like it was just too much to handle you know the bible speaks of we're going to see you know psalms later on where it speaks about being at our wits end the bible actually makes that statement where does that come from right in the bible and this is the idea that there are times where as human beings we're subjected to certain things or maybe we go through a season or we go through maybe some tragedy or some hardship or maybe we're just facing things and one thing's like cumulative compounding upon the other and we just feel like we're overwhelmed. No, I'm a Christian. I should never be overwhelmed. Well, David loved the Lord and at times David says, when my heart is overwhelmed. So apparently there were times, though he loved the Lord and walked with the Lord, that in his emotions and his thoughts and even in his spiritual condition, he still felt very overwhelmed. And so it's a totally normal thing. Perhaps tonight you feel a degree overwhelmed. Well, listen, that just makes you human. Puts you in good company. David says, when my heart is overwhelmed, meaning it happens at times, he says, Lord, in those times, lead me. There's the first two words. Is your heart overwhelmed tonight? The first thing that you should do is not necessarily take a prescription. The first thing you should do is say, Lord, the first antidote is I am overwhelmed. Lord, please lead me. I don't know the first step that I'm supposed to take here. I don't know if I'm supposed to turn right, left, stop, go. Lord, just please lead me. Lead me through my next thought. Lead me through my next few minutes. Lead me throughout the remainder of this day. Again, just please, Lord, lead me. Lead my life. And then he says, lead me, notice, to the rock. What's a rock? A rock is a place of stability. It's a place of safety. It's a place that's a foundation, someone that, where, where you can build upon. It, it keeps you secure. 
and he says, lead me to that rock that is higher than I. In other words, Lord, I need you to elevate me out of my difficulty. I feel overwhelmed. It's almost like David pictured himself like being stuck you know, in, in an ocean and the waves are just crashing over him and crashing over him. And he says, Lord, you've got to get me to higher ground. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, sometimes literally, that's what we feel like, right? We feel like we're just getting buried in the, we're just like caught in the, that's probably called the, what, some of you guys are surfers. What's that called? You caught in the, the riptide, or, or if you if you get out to where the breakers are, and then you just you fall off your surfboard. That's what I'm thinking of, and just and just like you're stuck in the that's the surf, right? Impact zone, right? So you're and you just can't get out of it. I've never been there, but I'm sure John has. He's going to tell you about it. He never falls off a surfboard. That can't be true, but that's the idea. And just boom, just you know, one wave after another, just crash them. I just I'm overwhelmed. I can't swim out of this. I can't swim out of this, Lord. I need you to get me out of this, get me to higher ground. And sometimes that's what happens to us emotionally, right? Anxiety and depression and all these overwhelming feelings and thoughts. And just all of a sudden, we just feel like we're in the impact zone of all these things just swirling around on top of us. And that's when we say, Lord, you've got to get me to higher ground. Please get me back to a place of stability Bring me back to that place. Put my feet back upon a stable rock once again. And look, how many times does the Bible refer Deuteronomy 32 and other places to God as our rock? That's one of the ways God personifies himself. And just saying, Lord, I need to just get me out of this place. Put me back on that higher ground once again where I can be safe. I can regroup. I can get my bearings again mentally and spiritually and emotionally. And again, these are just normal things that we go through as people. And we need to recognize what to do in those times. What's the right way to respond? It's to, to reach out to the Lord and to ask God to help us. Look, there's nothing that anything else can do better for us than what God himself can do for us. Perhaps if we learn to rely upon God to a degree. A little bit more believing he's as great as a God that he is. I wonder if we wouldn't need all the other things that we sometimes think that we need to cope, to survive. David says, yes, I'm overwhelmed. But Lord, he prays, lead me to that rock that's higher than I. He says, verse three, for you have been a shelter, a place of protection, a refuge from the stormy conditions, a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. The strong tower was elevated above so that the enemy couldn't access and attack you. And he says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever and trust in the shelter of your wings. So notice, David says, verse three, Lord, you have been. That's past tense. Lord, I have seen before you have been a shelter for me and you've been a strong tower for me from my enemies and from the storm. So David says, Lord, I've seen you be faithful in my life in the past. So because of what you have been to me in my past, he then says, verse four, I will therefore abide in your tabernacle and I will trust in the shelter of your wings. David says, because of what you have done in the past, it makes you worthwhile to trust in the present. And see, this is one of the things that we need to do when our heart is being overwhelmed is we need to say, look, Lord, you have been faithful to me before. Look, tonight, can you not in genuineness Look back and say, wow, there are times the Lord has been faithful. He's helped me. He's intervened. He's got me out of dilemmas. And you look like and say, Lord, because you have been this before and you have done this before. Therefore, I will trust that you can do it now in my life. I will believe that you can help me in this current situation. He says, I'm going to remain or abide in your tabernacle. In other words, I'm going to remain in the place where the worship of God was happening that was a good place to be in the midst of hard times. And he says, and I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Now, David could mean in the physical shelter of God's wings. The idea is another picture there of, of kind of hiding like a, a baby chick under the, the, the mother's wings for, for protection. Or as David's referring to the tabernacle, he could be thinking of the, the wings on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant as the wings were there and, and hiding under the shelter. And the idea is, Lord, I'm going to trust in your mercy. I'm going to trust that because of the blood that goes upon the mercy seat, that you will be merciful to me, and I'm going to trust in your mercy to help me. He says, verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. 
You will, he says, prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. So he's saying, Lord, you have heard me before. You know the vows I've made that I want to serve you. And Lord, only you and you alone can extend and prolong, he says, my life. God's in control of that. Verse 7, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. And then he concludes verse 8, so I will sing praise, he says, to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. So again, David goes from crisis and calamity. His heart's overwhelmed, right? My heart is overwhelmed. What should I do? Stay home and isolate. Oh, my heart is overwhelmed. What does David say? No, he says, my heart is overwhelmed. I need to run to God and continue to be in his tabernacle, remain in his house, be with his people. And he says, Lord, I know what I'll do. I will sing and praise your name forever. I'm going to just keep worshiping and singing praise to your name. And therapeutically, Lord, I'm going to watch that it help me in my mental condition and my emotional uh, you know, state. I'm just going to keep singing praise. And notice, I will sing praise. It was a conscious choice. Didn't matter how David felt. He said, my heart's overwhelmed, but I will sing anyway because God's worthy to be praised no matter what we feel like, right? He says, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may notice gain strength to daily perform my vows. So quickly, Psalm 62, we'll finish up with this. It's a short one. He says, truly my soul silently waits for God for from him, comes my salvation. Again, David knew that the only place of deliverance was God himself. So he says, my soul is going to silently, I like that, silently wait for God. The idea is I'm just going to, in quietness, wait for God to work. I'm just going to rely that God is going to come through. I'm going to silently just wait upon the Lord for from him, and this seems to be the theme of the psalm, God is our expectation, keeping our hope in him, almost sort of as David said in the end of Psalm 60, the help of man is useless, but God is utterly reliable. So he says, from him comes my salvation. And boy, that is certainly true for all of us in a spiritual sense through Christ, is it not? From him comes our salvation. Jesus is Jehovah God. Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is God who became our savior, the New Testament teaches us. The Bible teaches, using that very term in the New Testament, God, our Savior, when it refers to Jesus. God, our Savior. That is, God became our Savior. The one who we sinned against actually became our Savior in Christ, and from him comes our salvation through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. David says, verse 2, he only is my rock. Notice the reference to God as a rock, as we talked about, and my salvation. He is my defense. It's a good reminder when you feel propelled in some way to want to defend yourself and you're kind of feeling your, he's my defense. David had learned that. So I shall not be greatly moved. David knew if the Lord is on my side, if he's my defense, then I don't have to worry about people moving me off course. You know, people may say this or do that to me and do this to you, but he says, I'm not going to be greatly moved. Somebody may nudge me, knock me off balance, whatever, give me a small setback, but he says, I'm not going to be greatly moved because God's my stability. God is the stability of my life. He's my defense and then David speaks to his attackers, verse 3. How long will you attack a man? David says, you shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. The idea is like an old rickety fence. David says, God can just push you down very quickly, though you're coming against me. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. Well, that's a sad, tragic thing becoming a fitting description of modern media. They don't just lie, they delight in lies. There's some twisted enjoyment in providing misinformation, actually enjoying being able to misdirect rather than just inform. Uh, they want to inform your opinion with errors. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but David says, but they curse inwardly. Think about that. 
Can't just trust what people say with their mouths. Many people can be golden-tongued in the things they say and speak sweet nothings and seem kind and happy, but yet inwardly their heart is in a completely different condition. Now, verse 5, look what David does. Verse 1, he says, my soul waits silently for God. Now David does something that sometimes we think we're crazy if we do. We do. He talks to himself. He talks to himself. He says, verse 5, my soul, he tells the soul what to do, wait silently for God alone. David, in verse 1, declares he's going to do it. Now, in verse 5, he's reminding himself, soul, you need to do what I committed to do. You need to wait silently for God. He's kind of coaching himself spiritually. And sometimes, you know, we need to do that from time to time. We need to encourage our own soul. Soul, you need to wait silently. Notice he adds now for God alone. Don't start trying to manipulate things, soul, he's saying. You wait for God alone. Not God and maybe if I do this too. Not God and maybe I'll tell that person about my need as well. No, he says, you wait for God alone. You tell God, you rely on God, and give God a chance to work. Give God a chance to show he'll take care of that need. Give God a chance to work in that situation. He says, soul, you wait silently for God alone. I love David's statement in the end of verse 5. For my expectation is from him. Have great expectations because you serve a great God. May your expectations be in God, trusting in God, hope in God for things. My expectation is not from this person or me doing this and trying to make something happen. No, my expectation, whatever your expectation is, what you need, let your expectation be from God alone. Expect God to do stuff. May your expectation be for him to work on your behalf. And he will do that in his good timing and his perfect will. My expectation is from him, David said, for he only is my rock and my salvation. Again, he's going back to what he said earlier, repetition. He is my defense and I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. He is the rock, the stability of my strength. And my refuge is in God. And then David gives you and I an encouragement. First, he talks to himself, gets himself built up spiritually. And he says, you know what? I'm feeling kind of strong. Let me encourage you too. Verse eight, he says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So David says, look, I'm not just doing this for myself. He says, you do it too. Join me in this, David says. Trust in him. At all times, not just when it's easy to, not when it just seems like it's he's going to trust in him at all times and pour out your heart before him. The idea is just pray incessantly. The idea of pouring out your heart, just, you know, we pour out our hearts to one another. And I think that's, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I'm so glad that, you know, we can talk to one another and listen to one another and counsel one another and vent and express things. But I do wonder sometimes, as the people of God, if we spent more time pouring out our heart to God, even than just pouring out our hearts to other Christians, if maybe we'd see God do some really wonderful, powerful things. You know, if more people were excited about talking to God than they were talking even to other Christians, who knows what would happen? I mean, who knows what would happen if we'd, hey... We have an, and I tell you, from a pastoral perspective, I can really connect with this because part of what my life and calling is is hearing people you know, pour out their hearts and they need counseling and you're listening to their problems and their struggles and their difficulties. And the same people who you know, pour out their heart about this and pour out their heart about that and pour out their heart about this, you're thinking, okay, these people are going to be at every prayer meeting because they got major issues, right? And, and you're thinking, shouldn't these be the people who come in there? I got to pour out my heart to God. God, I need your help. I wonder what would happen if we poured out our hearts to God. Do we really believe that God listens and answers and acts? David says, pour out your heart to God. Trust in him. Let your expectation be from him. See what God would do. He says, trust in him to work. And then he says, verse 9, again, back to the finiteness of man. Surely men of low degree 
are a vapor. They just vanish away like steam or smoke. Men of high degree, he says, they're just a lie. There's nothing credible, ultimately more. If they're weighed on the scales, the idea is you take all the men of low degree and all the men of high degree, the best of the best and the worst of the worst, and you put them all together. If they're all weighed on the scales in comparison to the weightiness of God's credibility, David says they're lighter than a vapor. The idea is, you know, the best that men can bring just really is nothing in comparison to the greatness of God, which is why we should trust in the Lord uh, to a much greater degree. So he says, verse 10, do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. So he says, look, don't turn to wrong things. Well, well, let me, you know, oppress or rob people. The idea is start throwing your weight around, you know, bullying people and trying to manipulate or robbing or taking things by force. David says, don't start doing that kind of stuff. Don't start finding inappropriate ways to get what you want. That's that's not the right way. Look to God for stuff. And then look what he says, verse 10. And if riches do increase, don't set your heart on them. Well, that's a great reminder. Again, the Bible says there's nothing inherently wrong or evil about being rich or being blessed. I mean, from time to time, God blesses and enriches people. But the Bible just says, look... Even if riches increase, you experience financial prosperity. He says, be careful that you don't start relying on your resources rather than the true resource, who is God himself that gave you those resources. You know, Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he writes to the rich, actually to the wealthy in the church, he tells the wealthy in the church not to trust in uncertain, he uses that word, uncertain riches, but in the living God who supplies all things. So he says, look, when wealth increases, great, praise the Lord. But don't begin to let your heart become overly attached to that. And then all of a sudden, that wealth becomes your God. That wealth becomes your deliverance, your source, your provision. No, he says, who gave that to you? God did. So he's just saying, keep a right heart relationship in, in those things. If riches increase, nothing wrong with that. But don't set your heart on them. Don't fall in love with them. The Bible says it's the love of money. Remember, the love of money that becomes a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money. It, it's the love of it, setting your heart on it too much that becomes the root of wrong relating to money and wrong behaviors in our attitudes. So he says, if your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. And then he concludes verse 11 saying, God has spoken once, but yet twice I've heard this. I like that. God speaks but it's like God's voice reverberates. It's amazing how you hear God's voice and then it just rings in your head sometimes. And God's, God can declare something really strongly one time, but then you'll keep hearing it a few more times. David says, he's spoken once, but I've heard this twice, that power belongs to God, not to the wealthy, not to men of high degree, low degree, not to us in our own human strength. And he says, no, this is what I know. God is powerful. To him belongs all power. And also to you, O Lord, belong mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Lord, this is what I've heard you hear again and again. You are a God of incredible power, and you're also a God of incredible mercy. Just again, that balance. God is super merciful in our weaknesses and our shortcomings. And God is super powerful to help us. And he says at the end of verse 12, therefore, Lord, because you're powerful and you're merciful, you will render to each one according to his work. And the idea there is not render in the sense of God's gonna judge those for wrong works. The idea here is God will compensate or render reward properly to each person according to what they've done. Again, the idea is that we just continue to keep doing what's right before the Lord, honoring the Lord, and we trust the Lord to take care of us. We, we trust the Lord to meet us with what we need and reward us accordingly because of his faithfulness. Let's stand, let's pray.